I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie, I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's guest is Ben Cowan Duar. Ben is the developer behind uh, Cabot, a rapidly growing golf uh, destination company, golf resort company. He started with Cabot Cape Breton up uh, in Canada. He has since uh, expanded with Cabot St. Lucia, Cabot Revelstoke planned in uh, Canada as well as well as Cabot Citrus Farms down in Florida. So we uh, talked a lot about how Ben got his start in the industry. I think it's a unique journey. Obviously, um, he's he's a younger guy in terms of a golf developer and uh, an interesting story on how you become one. So without further ado, here is Ben. All right, Ben, uh, welcome on. You know, one of the, the busiest men in golf. Big news, obviously, in the last week with uh, Cabot Citrus Farm, which is uh, the old world woods, and I'm sure there's bigger and uh, better plans for it. But talk a little bit about uh, how world woods came about. Um, well, you know, for me, world woods uh, was really one of the exemplars in destination golf if you will sort of before we uh, we talked a lot about it and i had uh, i'd found my way there more than 20 years ago basically just hearing about this place had a great public access golf and obviously it opened in 1993 and and tom fazio had done you know rolling oaks pine barrens and you know a circular driving range which was extraordinarily novel at the time and that a nine hole par three before uh, and a short course, I guess it wasn't, it wasn't all par threes and a three hole practice loop and, you know, a two acre putting green. And it was sort of a, uh, you know, a smorgasbord of, of golf for, for the public golfer, which, you know, predated Bandon. And certainly, uh, I hadn't, uh, I hadn't yet thought of Cabot when I first went there, but was, was hugely inspired, uh, you know, hugely inspired by it. And, uh, and really, I think the thing that for me, Andy, which I've heard so many times is, uh, it didn't feel like Florida. And, uh, you know, people, when they said that, were really saying, you know, look, it had a lot of elevation change. It had a lot of exposed sand and, you know, it had mossy oaks and, you know, and really old stately trees. And and so, you know, I've long loved the place and had long, uh, long hoped we could uh, acquire it. And it tried a few times over the years, obviously unsuccessfully until we were, uh, we were very thankful that we were able to, uh, to buy it from the original developer um, who uh, who had developed it with a grand vision uh, thirty years ago, and uh, and able to uh, to take it forward today. It's it's got to be for you a little bit different. Obviously, you've got Cabot St. Lucia in development. You've got Cabot Nova Scotia, Cape Breton, um, and you know this one though you're you're taking over something with existing infrastructure. Um, so. 
I imagine a lot of it is kind of reimagining, updating, getting it to, you know, your standards with in terms of lodging and also the golf courses, which are, you know, as you said, I I went there right after college. Uh, So it would have been early 2000s was the first time I'd been there. And a buddy of mine, we were just amazed at the golf, you know, for somebody that hadn't at that time played a lot of golf courses around the world, you go down there and you're like, God, this is a different type of golf that I'm used to seeing. And and like you said, it was really ahead of its time. Well, and I think, you know, um, I think you're right. I mean, I think the one thing that um, that was always clear, I mean, it used to be pretty hard to get to, too, right? It was a lot of sort of circuitous roads and they've you know, with the Suncoast Parkway now going straight up from Tampa, it's 45 minutes from the Tampa airport. And so I think it's gotten easier to get to. Um, but as you drive in there today, it's obvious that, you know, in our, our model of building, you know, cottages, villas, and hotel, you know, they just never really got all the way there on. And I think there and really was the obvious opportunity for us, Andy, which was, you know, if we could uh, if we could get the golf to to shine like it did when you and I first saw it, and uh, and build accommodation, then I think you know it's uh, we we love the land, love the location, and and there's quite a bit of additional land that is undeveloped. But you know, they didn't uh, they didn't get to building the accommodation, which I think really uh, allowed us that opportunity. I mean, I I think it's existing golf, and it literally is is operating uh, operating golf today, and you know, but. Uh, but Cape Breton, um, while uh, you know Mike Kaiser and I brought uh, brought Cabot Links uh, to uh, to life, you know there had been previous iterations, and uh, you know a few golf course architects who had done routing plans, and, and similarly in St. Lucia, it was a you know it was a golf development that uh, unfortunately succumbed to the financial crisis. So. You know, I mean, I think uh, it's uh, it's hard to say that uh, that those were truly original ideas because there were people thinking about golf there before. But you know, I think being able to to build on places that there is infrastructure and and golf is uh, is certainly uh, certainly a lot easier than having to cobble together all the individual parcels as we did uh, somewhat in uh, in Cape Breton. For for those that have played the the courses, uh, you know, in terms of your plans, I, I've seen a few things bad around the internet. Are you guys thinking more of a restoration or more of a renovation? You know, obviously, you know, both those courses aren't. I wouldn't say they're perfect uh, in any way, but they're they're very good public go- access golf courses today. Um, you know, what what are are your thoughts on those courses? Are are you looking at you know kind of some some tweaks, some major tweaks? Or you know, just trying to put them back to what they were originally. Well, I think uh, I think that's what we're really uh, really formulating the plan right now, and uh, and we haven't uh, you know, um, I'm sure there's lots of uh, lots of things bandied around the internet, and some of them might even be true. But since I haven't uh, since I haven't made up my mind, I know which ones are and which ones aren't. I guess, but you know, look it. Um, you know, I think the biggest thing that if you look at from when you first visited and when I first visited to today, what you really see is just a massive amount of uh, of tree growth, right? And uh, and certainly, you know, that has has impacted everything. It's impacted the the turf conditions. It's impacted the sight lines. And so, you know, I think uh, I think it's clear to us that we need to you know to peel back some of that. I think in where there's opportunities, such a beautiful site, you know, and it's, you know, part of Florida's nature coast and you really feel it when you're out there, it feels, 
like a real retreat to nature. And so, I, I mean, I want to get it to a place that, uh, that it's very walkable, which, you know, in my times over the last, uh, over the last year, or really spending a lot of time there, you rarely see anybody walk it. And it's such a great piece of ground to walk. So I think, you know, those are, those are sort of the two obvious things that, uh, that we need to do. And, and I think, uh, you know, I think bring it, uh, bring it to the market with, um, you know, a fresh, uh, a fresh look. And, uh, and I think it's probably, uh, I don't know where, you know, um, where restoration renovation uh, meet, but it's probably somewhere in between there. Yeah. It's, it's the line gets more and more blurred seemingly every day. So it's, it's, so I never know what to call things that, you know, there's distinct changes, but it's mostly back. It's like, do you, you know, is it a restivation, which, you know, is a word I don't want to use ever, but it seems like the there you go. I like it. I like it. Them. I'm going to, I'm going to say, I'm going to start quoting you uh, and saying that. So there you go. <laughs> It's it's not a fun word to say, but the uh, having I haven't been it's something that's high on my list of places to go, which is a long list, but it's, it's high up there. Is uh, is Cape Breton and to see uh, you know Cabot Lakes and Cabot Cliffs, but. You know, seeing that I haven't been there, I thought, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to discuss with you is uh, is your journey as an entrepreneur, because I think that's one of the most interesting, you know, stories about, you know, this is Cabot is seemingly, you know, you kind of hacked, not hacked, but worked your way into the golf space and worked your way into one of the most envious roles in the golf space as a, you know, a large scale now golf developer. So I'd love to go back um, to, to the beginning and, you know, could you describe a little bit like, you know, what drove you in your mid twenties when so many people were out at the bar being idiots to attempt to build a world-class golf resort. Take us back to, you know, what, what got you there? Well, you know, I, uh, I think I, uh, it probably started a little bit earlier than that. And, uh, I was drawing golf holes, uh, at a young age and my mom, uh, thankfully kept binders of the golf holes, but I would, uh, you know, watch golf. I'd read about golf. I remember, uh, you know, you may be too young, but I remember, getting up um, at 11.35 on, uh, in the evening, and I was allowed to as a kid, and watching the Masters highlights on CBS on Thursday and Friday just ahead of the late show. And, you know, that was all you knew about the Masters. And, I mean, I knew, that, you know, I, I was sure at, you know, 11, I knew how every putt broke. And, uh, and you know, I just loved the game. But I really loved golf courses. And, uh, and so I built a golf hole um I guess when I was maybe 11 or 12 on our family farm and I had a whole bunch of tees and, uh, and my drawings on golf, uh, you know, which, uh, I don't let any of the, uh, the great architects who are mostly my friends see, uh, were, were heavily inspired by, you know, Pete Dye at his, uh, at his most, you know, sort of, uh, do or die dramatic, uh, over water, uh, you know, stuff, a lot of split fairways and, uh, and all of those things. But so, I mean, I loved, I just loved golf, um, you know, from a young age and that sort of got me into the business in, at the beginning of the internet and, and, you know, through a golf travel business and golf marketing, I got to travel and play most, most all the world's great golf courses. And so, you know, I sort of had the best job in the world and I'd created that for myself. And that was my, um, you know, my early twenties. And so, um, 
having rose colored glasses on and having seen most of the world's great places and to, but I'd been looking at sites for golf as any entrepreneur with not enough money to build a golf course uh, would be doing. And, uh, and I was at a dinner in Toronto, uh, which is, you know, his home and, and was home then. And, um, and I was seated next to the minister of tourism from Nova Scotia, who was there playing the fiddle. And, and I, I was predisposed to loving Cape Breton Island. I'd been there and my wife's family, her grandmother's 104 and still, uh, still lives in Cape Breton. So we'd been there in the oh summer, God. but he, he said, I know, I know, good genes. So, uh, so he, uh, he said, you know, look, I've got this great site for golf. And I said, minister, honestly, every farmer I've ever met with 200 acres thinks they've got the next great site for golf. And, you know, I was, uh, I was, I guess I was 24 and, you know, he thankfully didn't think I was too much of a jerk for saying that and got the jest, but said, no, this is the real deal. And, uh, you know, Jack, uh, Jack Nicholas had done a routing plan and, you know, Graham Cook, a Canadian architect had looked at my cards and had called it one of the great sites left for golf. So again, it wasn't my, my original idea at all. And, and the town of Inverness had really thought about, um, thought about golf as far back as, 1969 and had a very clear vision that the site was different that a mile of ocean frontage and uh, and then the town and it was because there was this old coal mine that was you know ha had been dug down 300 feet and went a mile out under the ocean floor and you know so it had been obviously very hard and nobody had been able to assemble all the land and uh, you know the photos he had weren't great they're pretty you know they were aerials but you got a sense that there was a mile of sand beach and a town called Inverness that was built. And I thought in 2004, where in the world are you going to get to build a Lynx golf course in between a town and an ocean? You know, Dornick uh, at 400 years old and St. Andrews at 500 years old. You know, those towns sort of grew up around the golf. This was sort of the inverse. And, and I just thought, seemed like, you know, the greatest idea in the history of humankind. And uh, I went and saw it on, uh, on a December uh, day and uh, it was a beautiful day and the sun was shining and I could see all these golf holes and it was really really a beautiful sight and uh, and I went back with Rod Whitman three weeks later and it was a less beautiful day and the wind was whipping and you know Rod uh, Rod said he couldn't see it because his eyes were frozen shut which was a bit of a <laughs> tough way to you know to start and he was uh, he was joking too but we got uh, we got through those early days and then I had my first meeting thinking it was such a great idea and was told it was the worst idea uh, by this banker that he'd ever heard and so you know and and so look i mean it was uh, it was a very tough land assembly it took me um, about 3 years and um, and i had all sorts of uh, ideas of how i would find enough money to to build it and you know, I called Mike um I called Mike Kaiser pretty early on after seeing it and he was about to open Bandon Trails and Barn Boogle had just opened and you know, he said he was a long remote golf, but you know, in, in sort of Mike's amazing way, he said that Ben, you know, wait, you're you're gonna be a huge success and when you are you won't be able to afford more land. So you've gotta go get you know, land for the second course now. And I said, Gosh, you know, Mike I'm, you know pretty young. I don't have enough money to build the first course. I don't think I would need to go longer on real estate. He said, no, 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 you got to do it. And so while we were assembling all of the pieces that made up Cabot Links, we started to, you know, look to the land at Cabot Cliffs. And, uh, and I think, you know, Mike, um, Mike, like so many people probably thought it was a long shot that I would be able to assemble the land, which thankfully I didn't, 
you know, in my naivety, I didn't know it would be so hard. And, but I had time and, uh, you know, and, and a little bit of persistence. And, uh, and as it became clear, I would get the land. I circled back to Mike because there was really no one else. I mean, everybody else, when I'd talk about plans of walking only and Lynx Golf, you know, they had visions of cart paths and, you know, green checkerboard fairways. So, you know, Mike, none of that stuff obviously he's like well of course is walking only like you know what idiot would do anything else he wouldn't have said that but you know basically his tone would have and and so you know i think um i think he just got everything i was uh i was sort of envisioning and and look i mean who who better i mean aside from having done band and and you know sort of the obvious uh, the father of remote destination golf he really um you know, he really was just an amazing exemplar and, uh, and, you know, wonderful, you know, friend, partner, teacher, all of the, all of the things you could ever hope for. So, and so if I am in an enviable position today, it's, uh, it's a lot of dumb luck and, uh, and more Mike Kaiser than anything else. Yeah. I think you're downplaying yourself. You know, I, it's something that resonates with me is the, you know, the people I used to work for a, a tech startup that, uh, was funded by Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz who are, you know, renowned in the tech community, you know, arguably the most successful venture capital fund in the world. And Ben Horowitz gave a talk at, at our, our office one day. And, you know, he told our group that they don't invest in any idea that at least one of their partners doesn't say is the worst idea in the world. Because if, if everybody says it's a great idea, somebody's tried and failed. So it's interesting because that, that's something that I think is, is smart. When I think back to me starting the fried egg, I was a horrible writer, horrible public speaker, and I started a business that centered around that. That was a dumb idea. Most people would say that's idiotic. But it takes, you know, it, it, that's what it takes to start something and do something different. Um, I, I'd love to t- go back a little bit and talk about the land. So you, you hear about this land, you go to the land, you see it, you bring Rod Whitman out. Who owned the land? Were there different owners of different parcels? How did you put it together? And were there any, you know, any crazy stories? Like who were the people that owned this land? Obviously, it's an old mining town. There had to be some some interesting uh, dealings in, in that process. Well, I mean, you know, look, there were uh, there were uh, an awful lot of land transactions in between links and cliffs, and you know, I think there's uh, there's more than 40, uh, 40 parcels of land that we acquired, but. I think the thing, you know, again, back to the idea of golf not being not being an original one of mine in Inverness. The thing that was amazing on that first day, Andy, was I went and I was met um, by a group of uh, a group of men, and you know, who had really fostered this dream. And again, when they had been told it was insane, it would never work. A golf course would never work. You know, they were told to build a three-star golf course. I didn't really know what that meant, but you know. Like they sort of had, you know, they'd been through the ringer and they'd had their hopes, you know, rise and fall so many times. And these were all volunteers in the community. It was, you know, um, the dentist in town, the, the superintendent of education, a, a principal, you know, just people who had grown up in their community. And, and you can imagine a, a vibrant mining community 100 years ago that had a population far greater than the town, you know, was when I arrived there that had sort of lost its economic engine you know 50 years ago would have been easy to be skeptical and particularly because they they felt like they'd been on the cusp of success so many times you know so 
the they were they were not just supportive of the vision they had really had the vision that this could be transformative and a transformative economic engine and i think had it not been that it wouldn't have been possible so they um they were members of the of the inverness development association which owned a couple of parcels the province of nova scotia owned some of the land at uh, the municipality of inverness and there were two businesses that owned land and so but, you know, it really was um, the bulk of it um, was largely controlled by this uh, by this group, the Inverness Development Association, and, and led by these town fathers who just had a vision that they needed an economic engine. And um, my my sort of if I have one piece of wonderment looking back on it, you know, 17 years later, it's that we. Uh, you know, we were able to assemble that ocean frontage and uh, and give you know Rod and then laterally Bill and Ben and at Cabot Cliffs the chance to you know to build golf on the sea and uh, in a wonderful community and and I think when you know there's absolutely no uh, no doubt in my mind that when Mike agreed to partner and and that was announced I think um, you know the the town fathers would have thought their prayers had been answered and then obviously the the great uh, the great financial crisis of 08 you know sort of threatened to derail us but we persisted through that and then uh, you know opened and and had uh, you know had some early success and built on that with cliffs and uh, and opened the nest our par three last summer and you know keep trying to come up with uh, with fun things to do there now for a quick word from our sponsor meridian now you're probably wondering what meridian is it is a grooming product for the other areas other than your face it's a company that breaks the stigma and uh, helps guys take better care of their bodies it is a very high quality trimmer it is uh it's known as the top of the line product in the space it features a 6000 rpm motor I, th- I think you want faster not slower you want more spin in this kind of uh, realm than you want less spin uh unlike your your driver you want high high rpms here it has a flexible ceramic blade anti-nick shaving guard i think that's the most important part of this is that anti-nick technology that uh Make sure that you don't have any nicks and cuts in the, in the most sensitive areas. So make a resolution here. We're still in resolution season. It's early in 2022. Be just a better groomed human being. And you can do that with Meridian. So if you go to meridiangrooming.com and use the promo code FRIEDEGG, you get a free pair of boxer briefs. So a nice little freebie. If you uh, get their premium below the belt trimmer, you get a free pair of boxers with the code FRIEDEGG, no spaces. That's meridiangrooming.com and the promo code is FRIEDEGG, no spaces. With, I, I imagine, obviously, uh, Mike Kaiser, as you've alluded to a couple times coming on, was was kind of like your high water mark or in the early where where you, okay, this is going to work. Was there a point when you were really in the process? You were you had already poured so much time, energy, effort into it where you were where the opposite was, oh, this isn't going to work. And, and it might have been, you know, a, a point where you look back so many times and think, God, if this hadn't happened or that hadn't happened, you know, uh, you know, or, and now you laugh about it. But at the time, it probably occupied your brain for weeks on end. Yeah, I think it was every moment before Mike agreed to do it was probably the answer to that. But, you know, I mean, 
you know, look from from when I saw it that first time to uh, to coming to an agreement with Mike and uh, and closing on the land. You know, it was uh, it was three years. I mean, you know, it was three years of my life, and and it wasn't like there were you know it wasn't sort of your your vc thing of five or six people were saying it was a good idea and there's one person i mean everybody was saying like this is a really bad idea and you know and i think uh, i had a, a wonderful uh, a wonderful girlfriend um at the time who became my wife and uh, and she was uh, extraordinarily supportive and said like i think you can do it and i have uh, i have two wonderful parents who both kept telling me like you're onto something keep on it and uh so I blame the three of them probably uh, for everything that transpired after that. But I mean, it was a very, very, very tough three years, and uh, I'd had a a relatively successful um, you know venture as an entrepreneur in sort of the golf travel space and the golf marketing space. But I was taking every penny I was making out of that business and, and plowing it into this idea in uh, in Cape Breton Island, and I would say um, you know there was. And I and I think from an entrepreneurial standpoint, and you would uh, you would identify with it as would anybody who's been through that. But I think there's a lot of fear and self-loathing, and you know, 17 years later, it's an overnight success, and you know, uh, we get to do things like this podcast. But you know, in those early days, and you know, if somebody had offered me a small sum of money to take over the project, I probably would have said yes. I mean, you know, I was passionate about doing it, but it's like if, if somebody or and or if Mike had said, like, look, you know, I'll buy you out of your position and I'll do it. I'm Mike Kaiser. I've done Band of Dunes. You know, what do I need a, a pipsqueak from Canada to help me? You know, I'd have said great because I would have wanted to see the project go forward. And, and and I think that piece people probably who haven't been on an entrepreneurial journey really miss, which is there's still a lot of, you know, fear and self-loathing even after you, uh, you know, even after you have success and uh, and after we built links and uh you know, and built cliffs. I mean, I, I bought an industrial service business and I was, you know, half thinking that that would be my only foray in golf and I'd go into industrial service. And, you know, I had a great, uh, great, great, great Canadian uh, entrepreneur. And, you know, Mike sort of would look at me funny when I'd talk about this other business and, you know, but he was pretty quiet and pretty patient. And this other guy said, so, you know, you think you can build one of the best industrial service businesses in the world? And I was like, oh, my goodness, no. I mean, we're number three in Atlantic Canada. And, uh, and I think we might be able to get to number two. And he said, uh, so he's like, so you built two of the best golf courses in the world. And now you're happy being number three in a, you know, in a relatively small market. Yeah. So he was probably a bit uh, a bit firmer with his uh, his fingers in my sternum saying, like, look, look do you not love what you do? And I said, I love what I do, but, but yeah, no, it's been, uh, it's been remarkably fun and, uh, and I'm sure I couldn't get a job uh, if I wanted to. So I'll, uh, I'll just keep doing this. Yeah. I mean, the thing you hit uh, the highs and lows I mean, of entrepreneurship one day, I mean, it, even within the same day, you can be, oh, this was the greatest idea ever. And then later, like an hour and a half later, you can be like, if somebody offered me $500, I'd get rid of this thing right now. You know, it's it's unbelievable, you know, the swings of uh, emotion that can happen in such short periods of time. And I'm sure, like, it, it probably takes years off, off your life. Um, you know, with, with Rod Whitman, um, obviously, he... He's got quite a resume, had a quite a resume before 
doing Cabot Links, but you know, for Americans, you know, they might not be familiar with Rod Whitman. Was it was he a, just a slam dunk hire? Obviously, you're you're Canadian. He's a big Canadian architect. You know, you had him out three weeks after. Was he always the guy that you wanted to build the first course? Yeah, he was, and you know, I played golf with Rod and. September 9th of 2001. And so, you know, I guess I was 22 years old and uh, my dad and I were playing golf through, uh, we'd been to Banff and Jasper and I'd always wanted to see this course Rod had done called Wolf Creek, which I'd never seen. And I, uh, you know, I loved Pete Dye and uh, loved his work and, you know, I'd sought it out a lot in my travels. And so, you know, and I knew, what Pete had said about Rod and, you know, and, uh, and, you know, what he told me and, you know, and how much Bill talked about Rod. And, and so, you know, I would have, uh, I would have known and in, in a very loose term, you know, in, in sort of air quotes, known uh, Tom Doak and, uh, and Bill Coor a little bit at that point, but, you know, I was really focused on Rod and, uh, you know, and I think it was his, the quality of his work was so good. And, um, you know, and you listen to Bill and Ben talk about his contributions, you know, whether it was to Friar's Head or, uh, or any number of other, uh, projects or Pete talk about, you know, what he had done at, you know, Austin country club or, uh, or, or onward. And so, you know, I sort of knew there was something special and, uh, and Rod is, you know, one of the wonderful, um, one of the wonderful characters you get to meet, but, but very quiet and, you know, the absolute opposite of a, uh, of a promoter and, you know, and look, I think, and there's lots of, lots of great golf architects who are great promoters and lots of, you know, promoters who aren't great golf architects. And, you know, and Rod was just a great golf course builder um, who really didn't focus on selling themselves. And uh, and we've worked together on a number of projects now, and it's just one of the great joys of my life. But in in both standing on Cabot Links, I only thought of him. And standing on Cabot Revelstoke, I called him from the site uh, the first day I was there, about two hours in. And I said, I think I've got something I want you to come look at, and like, you know, the next day. And and then he's obviously built the built the par three for us with uh, with Dave Axlin, who he's now formed a partnership with. And Dave had been a part of building Cabot Links, Cabot Cliffs, uh, the Nest, the par three, and you know and, uh, Dave was down in St. Lucia in the early days. So you know another unbelievable character, an unbelievable piece of the you know sort of the fabric that you realize to be able to accomplish the things we're trying to accomplish. We needed uh, we needed amazing people like that to do it. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm something that I'm interested uh, a little bit, and I've gotten more interested, been thinking about the last couple of weeks a lot, is the the role of developer in creating golf architecture. Um, obviously, everybody that loves golf architecture likes to think of it as an art form, and I'm I'm interested because you're you're the one that looks at it from a business standpoint, you know, and you have the golf architects who you hire you know, who are creating art and you look at other, other industries, right. And, you know, the best music is usually produced when the band's in a garage by themselves doing it. The best art is done by, you know, the poor artist that is in their, you know, studio apartment and wherever they are, you know, by themselves making it. And I'm, I'm interested, you know, golf architecture as an art form is, is really, 
different than most because these these artists don't get to create their their art forms in solitude by themselves they do it in in tangent in in concert with a developer in almost every case or a membership so talk a little bit about your approach to working with these golf architects well, I think it's, you know it's a really interesting point, and I you know I do think uh, you know Andy Warhol's uh, you know line about uh, business uh, is the greatest art or something to that effect. You know, I think there's an intersection. I don't think they have to be you know competing forces, and I think being able to um, you know being able to look at it through a business lens, and you know, and some people would say maybe I wasn't a very good developer in some of the decisions I made, but you know, I think the best thing we could do was give them the biggest canvas to be able to do the art. Um, and so rather than, uh, you know, and I'm not saying we were, we were right and, you know, past plans were wrong, but you know, you might've seen a plan that had a clubhouse on the ocean, which meant you had to have an entry road, you know, come down to the ocean. And, uh, and that would have meant you would have had to have golf play around the clubhouse, you know, basically behind. And, and I guess my view was, um, you know, look, there were so many wonderful places that you could draw inspiration from where it was if we pull all of the buildings and, you know, that's the, our clubhouse and, you know, our lodge at Cabot and the villas to the top of the property, everybody would have a view looking across the golf course out of the ocean. And if we put, you know, a building right on the beach, you know, you'd see the service trucks and the parking lot and you play behind it and your view would be of the ocean, but I didn't think it would be a better view. So, and I think similarly in St. Lucia, you know, we, we had seen plans that had uh, where we have golf holes at homes and, and any real estate developer would tell you that, you know, that was valuable land that we let Bill and Ben build nine greens on the ocean. But I think, you know, my interest and, and the intersection, I hope, of the business and the art is is to be able to let them build the best golf course they can. And then, you know, we can figure out a business model around that. And uh and I think, um, you know, certainly uh, I bet Rod and Bill and Ben would all wish they worked in solitude rather than uh, than with me lots of days. But uh, I guess we've we've done a couple with each of them now, so they must not uh, must not bother them uh, too much. But, you know, I think um, what I know without a shadow of a doubt is I would not be able to route a golf course Um you know, to the level that I've watched Bill Coor and, and Rod do it, I would not be able to do the tie-ins and, uh, and, you know, sort of the little subtle ripples and, you know, rumples that sort of cause so much delight. I have played uh, an awful lot of the world's great courses and, uh, and have not been accused of being shy with my opinion. So certainly there's lots of things along the way that I'll say, what about this or how about this or, you know, um, but I think ultimately they are the artists and they hold the brush and, uh, and I marvel at it. And I think the only thing, you know, Mike told me this, we were having dinner uh, at Pebble beach after links and cliffs had opened and, uh, you know, we both long admired Pebble and, you know, I was saying it, it's so funny. The process of doing it is so much more fun than I thought it would be. And I would have thought the process of like, we've got a golf course and now we get to play it. Like, you know, as a kid, I thought like, that'll be the greatest day of your life. And, you know, and Mike, uh, as he's done so many times before, sort of, you know, uh, said, we'll stand on the first tee and we won't play on opening day. And, uh, 
and you know the joy I get from doing, and it's really special to be able to do uh, Revelstoke with Rod all these years later, to do Saint Lucia with Bill and Ben, and you know we were down um, we were down with them a month ago, but you know down a few months ago, Mike, Bill, Ben, and I it was just the four of us, and you know we're walking around at Saint Lucia, and, and as a kid, you know I grew up loving the Masters, as I said, and, you know loving Ben Crenshaw and you know, and sort of all things golf. And so it was easy, you know, in the busyness of Cabot Cliffs to forget that, you know, I was getting to build a golf course with Bill Coor, Ben Crenshaw, and Mike Kaiser. And, you know, sometimes it was, you're sort of like, you're focused on, okay, we got to get it done and we got a budget and there's all these things. And so, you know, I think, uh, I think walking around with Mike and, uh, and Bill and Ben in May, I, I sort of, you know, was acutely aware of, uh, of just how fortunate uh, I've been, not just to, you know, chase a dream and, uh, and get to do it every day. And, you know, I think, uh, doing what you love with people you love doing it with is the greatest luxury, uh, in one's life. And, and I certainly have that, but I think to watch, um, you know, to watch people who you, you may, you may agree. And I certainly think of, we're getting to work with some of the grandmasters, not just of this generation, but of all time. And, uh, and, you know, so, um, the best thing you can do is, uh, is not alienate them too much and uh, and give them a, a good canvas to work on. Well, Ben, you know, I uh I appreciate the time. This is uh this could be part 1. We'll we'll do part 2 at some point, maybe part 3, but we barely touched on half the topics that I wanted to talk about and you know, I I think that you know, I I'm, I'm excited to see so your work, excited to see all the new developments and um you know, I think uh you know, golf is uh in a better place because of uh you know, the work that you're doing and, and the the you know, bringing new great golf to new destinations. Well, it's uh, uh, there's nothing uh, nothing I can do that's more fun, and uh, and as I said, I won't get a job doing anything else anyway. So we'll keep uh, keep at it, and uh, and you know, love seeing uh, love seeing your success and cheering from the cheap seats here. So keep up the good work, and uh, and thrilled to do uh, to do a second part anytime. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode was edited by the wonderful Meg Atkins. Thank you, Meg. As a quick reminder, we've got golf season ramping up. We've got the waste management. Everybody's focused on the Super Bowl. You know, you got Super Bowl picks going in. I don't know who I'm rooting for, but now is the best time to sign up for the Fried Egg newsletter. Uh, if you go to thefriedegg.com, there's a subscribe bar right there. Will Knights does a great job. It's three days a week. Whether you're a diehard fan, a casual fan, it is an awesome way to stay up to date with all the happenings in golf. So go to thefriedegg.com and sign up for the free newsletter. It, it doesn't cost you a cent. <laughs>